Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Now the prince, what was he like? He's a very nice prince. And, and, it's a very nice ball. And, and, when I entered they trumpeted. And, the prince. Oh, the prince. Yes, the prince. Well, he's tall. Is that all? Did you dance? Is he charming? They say that he's charming. We did nothing but dance. Yes. And... And it made a nice change. No, the prince. Oh, the prince. Yes, the prince. He has charm for a prince, I guess. Yes. I don't don't meet a wide range. I will always laugh when she says, and it made a nice change. She's not responding to the questions. All right. We're going to be talking about a prince today. A prince. A very nice prince. Or is he a very nice prince? That's one of the really operant questions here uh, about Spare, about Prince Harry, uh, about the Duchess Meghan Markle, uh, about the Windsors, and about this incredible moment that, you know, in, in American culture and in British culture, I'm not sure which is experiencing it more vividly. No, I think Britain is. Uh, but ranging, starting perhaps with the Oprah Winfrey interview and certainly going forward through the Netflix series, the 60 Minutes uh, appearance, uh, this book Spare, which is the fastest selling uh, launch of a nonfiction book probably in publication history. Um, and yeah, it is written by Prince Harry with, and I think this is, I'm going to just mention this right off the bat, it's written by Prince Harry with a very talented nonfiction and ghostwriter J.R. Moringer. Um, uh, and if you vaguely recognize that name, Moringer, who also ghosted or assisted on uh, Andre Agassi's memoir, Open. But Moringer is the guy in Tender Bar. He, the Tender Bar is his book, is his uh, memoir about his own life. Uh, and it's uh, turned into a movie with Ben Affleck. Uh, and, you know, it's about, uh, it's about Moringer. As a boy, he loses his father. His father disappears from his life. And I think there's quite a bit of symbiosis going on between this writer and Prince Harry. Prince Harry uh, obviously lost his mother when he was 12 years old. Uh, and so much of this book is about being that broken egg uh, and trying to put his Humpty Dumpty back together again with, without much success. Uh, and I would also quickly say before I introduce the panel that Meghan Markle does not show up in this book during its first half. Uh, I don't know, how, you know, how, what fraction has been consumed, five-eighths, something like that, uh, before we even get any glimpse of Meghan Markle. So it's, it's a longer, bigger story than that. And here to explain it all to us is Teresa Kramer, freelance writer and editor and co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications, Tanisha Dugan, associate producer at Octopus Theatricals, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, and dancer. Uh, she's the founder and director uh, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance, and uh, she has a cat named Prince Harry, spelled H-A-I-R-Y, that kind of um, And it's a ginger cat. Um, so, but, you know, Tanisha, maybe to begin, because this has sort of come up on social media a bit too, make the case or, or don't make the case uh, for caring about or at least being drawn into this story. In other words, there are people listening right now saying, I can't believe they're going to do a whole episode uh, on these pampered brats, to use a phrase that did come up in my social media uh, feed. So so make the case one way or another on that. 
Well, I'll start with, I think we live in a delusional country if we think that centering pampered brats is uh, an anomaly. <laughs> to <laughs> you. Uh, we're surrounded by them. So I think being able to sort of look at that particular uh type of human through the lens of the royals is fantastic but i think for me there's something really interesting about a conversation about a post-colonial western civilization that this family allows us to unpack i think you know one of your last notes was you know despite how terrible the family seemed to be to megan they really wasted an opportunity to move away from a very checkered and that's being kind past into something that could could imagine a future of togetherness and so for me i think that the conversation about harry in particular but harry and megan as a sort of entity is a way for us to start to talk about like what does the future of western civilization look like when it is no longer uh tied to colonialism when it's no longer tied to sort of a monarchist um, Eurocentric, but really Anglophilic <laughs> uh, mindset. Can can we can we imagine that? And I think Harry's a really great um, ruse for that kind of conversation. Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree. And the point that I was making today also is, you know, if if Britain is worried about anything and the royal family is worried about anything, they they probably ought to be worried about the meaningfulness uh, of all of this, not so much in the United Kingdom itself or in, in, in the British Isles, let's say, uh, because, in fact, they do enjoy kind of certain weird conflicted popularity. But, you know, in the rest, in what they call, what they call the realms, you know, the Commonwealth, uh, and certainly the Caribbean part of the uh, realms and the Commonwealth is very l- more likely to be departing and forming republics and stuff like that. And and so, yeah, I was sort of looking at Meghan Markle and I was thinking, wow, if you wanted to tell them that you're not a bunch of doddering white people slathering yourselves with La Roche-Posay, <laughs> you know, the, here was your chance and you, you, you know, gave her the bum's rush. So, um, I mean, so, you kind of said, without saying, how you feel, right? About yes. those people. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid you. I'm afraid they might have. Yeah, they've done exactly that. <laughs> so yeah, and Teresa, let me just bounce an idea off you. Uh, a friend of mine said, you know what this is? It's really just the dynastic wars, you know, that consumed hundreds and hundreds of years uh, of mm-hmm. European history, uh, and that you know, and and hours and hours of our history classes, except that they don't use lances and, and trebuchets anymore. They use words. They use uh, media. They use the internet. Uh, but it, it really really is kind well it's the kind of dynastic squabble that Shakespeare would probably really be interested in this whole <laughs> question of whether Camilla was you know using her office to brief the British press about crap about <laughs> Harry and Meghan he he would have loved this yeah i mean the thing when we consider this question of like why they let the sort of opportunity of Meghan pass them by i mean i think it's almost more craven than just racism, right? It's like they are so obsessed with their own status in the hierarchy that they can't possibly have this person who is is essentially not even really in line for the throne, right? Harry's something like sixth at this point by the time he marries Meghan. So there's there's no real way in which they ever they ever get to the throne. But you know, Charles and Camilla have a big PR problem. And then and then William and Kate are very concerned about how they're seen. And then Megan comes in and everybody's like, oh, 
this is actually interesting and we want to we want to get to know her and she's friendly and it's the diana problem all over again where this outsider is the one everybody loves and they can't take that to the point where they will ultimately jeopardize the monarchy itself probably by by running these people out of town yeah, I mean, it, you know, there's that old thing about how history doesn't repeat itself; uh, it rhymes. Mm-hmm. No, this is history repeating itself. Yeah, this the, yeah. The, this is Megan is the, mm-hmm. the Megan narrative seems so close to the Diana narrative in exactly the way that you just said that it's mm-hmm. really almost uncanny that uh, the way the whole thing kind of shook out uh, like that. So, Carolyn. I guess one thing we haven't really talked about yet is, is this a good book or not? We should say also that um, several of us are listening to it as an audible thing. And Harry does his own reading, which is very interesting. And I think you did sort of a hybrid uh, thing where you listened, but you also had the hard copy of the book. I don't know. How does it work as a book? Um, okay, well, first of all, I love that you credited me at the beginning as to like validate that I should be here because I have a cat named Prince Harry. Um, so, you know... I, I did. I read this as a, as uh, Jonathan would say, a real book. Um, and I listened to the salacious parts on the audiobook to hear Prince Harry himself talk about um, his, his, to- his nether- Todger. His Todger. Yes. Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. His nether regions. Um, so it, it's not a bad book. I mean, it's readable. Um, <laughs> it's, is it going to go down as great literature? No, but it's going to it's going to go down as a book that people I mean, it's already a huge seller. It got people talking. It's interesting uh, in that the the story is very uh, it, it has like this heart to it where I did, went into this not wanting to feel how can you feel bad for him? But yet you go into this and and it's kind of this. uh He's sort of this like lost boy. It's sort of like he's like a Holden Caulfield kind of character at some mm-hmm. points. Uh, and so I, I do think that uh, it surprised me in that it was uh, readable and had enough interest to be considered decent. Like, I don't want to go so far as to say it's a good book, but I, I think that it is something that makes you think a lot, which I guess is, and, and it amuses you. It does everything that a book really needs to do. And it, it you, you read it fast. Right. Then there's uh, the little, little tiny chapters, I think, which, uh, mm-hmm. which help us make us think we're cheating. All right. Just for the rest of you who haven't had the pleasure yet, uh, we're going to play a slightly longer than usual chunk uh, from Spare. Uh, this is the audiobook edition. Prince Harry is doing his own reading. But also listen for a little bit of the cadence uh, of Moringer's style here. I think you'll you'll pick it up. Yes, well, one, please. Sorry. When my wife and I fled this place in fear for our sanity and physical safety, I wasn't sure when I'd ever come back. That was January 2020. Now, 15 months later, here I was, days after waking to 32 missed calls and then one short, heart-racing talk with Granny. Harry, Grandpa's gone. The wind picked up, turned colder. I hunched my shoulders, rubbed my arms regretted the thinness of my white shirt. I wished I'd not changed out of my funeral suit. I wished I'd thought to bring a coat. I turned my back to the wind and saw looming behind me the Gothic ruin, which in reality was no more Gothic than the Millennium Wheel. Some clever architect, some bit of stagecraft, like so much around here, I thought. I moved from the stone wall to a small wooden bench. Sitting, 
I checked my phone again, peered up and down the garden path. Where are they? Another gust of wind. Funny, it reminded me of Grandpa. His wintry demeanor, maybe, or his icy sense of humor. I recalled one particular shooting weekend years ago. A mate, just trying to make conversation, asked Grandpa what he thought of my new beard, which had been causing concern in the family and controversy in the press. Should the Queen force Prince Harry to shave? Grandpa looked at my mate, looked at my chin, broke into a devilish grin. That's no beard. Everyone laughed. To beard or not to beard, that was the question. But leave it to Grandpa to demand more beard. <laughs> right. So, Tanisha, I mean, there's so much that I want to talk about. But here, I, I should also say that I didn't care anything about the royal family for most of my life. And then I started watching The Crown. I guarantee you I've seen a thousand times more of Claire Foy and Imelda Staunton and Olivia Coleman and Helen Mirren being uh, QE2 than I ever saw of QE2. So many of my <laughs> understandings of who they are uh, are based on that. But, you know, it's sort of, I don't know, I had this odd relationship with Harry uh, all the way through this book, which is one of sympathy. He's telling his story. He's obviously in some ways a, a more substantial person that I maybe had sus- suspected that he was. But there are also these moments like he, he you know, there's this fam- famous instance where, you know, as kind of a young adult, he wears a Nazi uniform to a party, to a costume party. And he's really surprised. He and William are, according to this thing, really surprised that there's blowback. And then, like, eventually later on, he has to go to Berlin and you know, like, touch a wall or something. I think, did you not understand what happened? How, you're, like, 19 years old. How do you not know that's a problem? You know, why are you presenting this to us as this kind of buildings Roman where you finally figured it out? And, and I think there are kind of moments like that, like, how cloistered are these people mm-hmm. that they don't get basic things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, your tip off has my brain racing on on the places I want to go. I want to first start with like, I too have consumed these people as characters, both played by others and their own. And I'm actually very interested in Harry's continuation of his own character um, inside of this book that's supposed to be giving us a real inside intimate look at who he is. I, th- I think he understands his his role so deeply and it has become so embedded in who he is for real, not just this role that he plays, that it is hard sometimes in the case of, you know, the Nazi, um, the, the party dress to, to tell whether or not he's telling the truth mm-hmm. or telling a story he thinks has to be told because of the role that he has to play. And then I think of like, you know, there's a story about the Gurkhas and and how much he uh, was sort of held by that group of, of, of fighters when he was in, I want to say, I think it was uh, when he was in Afghanistan the first mm-hmm. time. Um, and he talks back about when he was a kid, his only connection to the Gurkhas was in role play and how in role play they always played the bad guys. And I thought to myself, okay, well, that's one of those moments where you go, why are these the bad guys, right? Mm -hmm. But I think there is something to what you're saying about they are so cloistered um, in a colonial mindset that that I don't think it even occurs to them. Um, In the same way that, you know, he ends up marrying somebody who clearly has it's never occurred to them that they exist in a in a in a racial world as opposed to a post-racial so i think you know it is surprising 
But I think it's a it's an important reminder that Harry is that way, I think, because of his privilege. But there are a lot of less privileged folks walking around with mindsets that allow them to sort of have black black spots, uh, blind spots to uh things that seem so obvious. To, well, to yeah, many. people keep getting on my social media and talking about how privileged they were. Eventually I said, look, you're a white guy born in America. You know, you 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 were born on second base and you think you hit a double. Um, you know, but you think all- about like, you know, these kinds of mistakes he's made. I mean, the, you know, and then going to Germany and sort of talking to, you know, survivors of Auschwitz. Or you think about this guy going to the North and South Poles in his life. I mean, it is insane the life that this man has has led. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, he's one of, of many of a of a continuum. Right. <laughs> and so Teresa, you know, another mm-hmm. part of this, and I'm feel free to react to also what she just said, but also you know, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is the whole time that Harry is narrating this book, he's describing himself as a person who could not possibly have written this book. I mean, he mm-hmm. just tells us again and again. He doesn't even really like books very much. The minute he's forced to even sit down and read some helicopter manuals, he goes into a <laughs> massive depression because all he wants to do is fly the helicopter and not know anything about it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and like he doesn't like Shakespeare, but there's this incredible Shakespearean motif that, mm-hmm. that that I'm assuming Moringer, you know, strings through this book. But it's it's so odd to be. I don't think I've ever read a book that was written by a ghostwriter where the presence of the ghostwriter was just constantly being hinted at. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things I came away from this with was just like wondering what the people who send their kids to Eaton are paying for because Harry cut basically comes away saying like I barely ever read a book. Um which I guess is him squandering his education. But at the same time, I feel like you still went to Eton. I don't understand. This is one of those things where I kind of am, I don't want to say confused. I'm not like the level, the level of privileges are weird here because yes, on the one hand, he gets to have all these amazing experiences and he gets sent off to this private school where he basically gets nothing out of it. And at the same time, he's like, or later in life, he's living in his father's like subterranean basement and like shopping at TJ Maxx because he has no money because everything is doled out by his father. So everything he gets to do is done based on what the palace says he can do. It's not actually like, oh, I want to go do this. I'm going to take my many, many funds and make sure it happens. It's like, oh, they're letting me go to the South Pole on this mission, or, oh, they're going, or we find out his dress allowance is only for formal clothes. So he has to go buy, like, out-of-date J. Crew stuff at the local TJ, TK Maxx. And I, I think that's maybe one of the most interesting things I took away from this, which is that, like, it's not just unbridled luxury all the time, depending on your station in the family. I don't know if anyone else was surprised by that. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us are surprised by what a rotten deal this is in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, basically, I mean, first of all, to his credit, he spent 10 years uh, in the Army and and Mm -hmm. he did grueling kinds of basic training. And he's clearly not afraid of that kind of stuff, not afraid of getting his hands dirty, not afraid of doing hard work, you know. Mm -hmm. And you just and obviously he's a tragic figure. His mother was killed when he was 12. He's never gotten over it. I mean, I don't know that anybody would find it particularly easy Mm -hmm. to get over it. But these are under very unusual circumstances. He's got this 
family that, you know, Tyler Berrius, Tanisha put it, I call them ring wraiths. You know, yeah. they seem like some kind of inbred Scientology unit or something, you know, and they don't hug anybody or kiss anybody or tell anybody that they love them or, you know, I mean, and, and then he's got this industry that's trying to destroy him mm-hmm. and trying to destroy everybody else in his family. And a family just figured out that the sharks have to eat, so throw somebody else in and I there. think to some degree, that's part of why Moringer is so present in this, because, you know, when he was, uh, I watched, I don't know if anyone else ended up watching the Colbert interview, but he sort of talks about himself as the source, not the writer. Mm-hmm. He says that sort of over and over again, like he wants to tell a story. He's very clearly not able to, you know, put together. I, I don't even know. This looks like a huge book in person, is it? It looks like it's like a 300 page. It's, four, it's 400 pages. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's huge. And so, um, I mean, at least for a memoir. And so I think it's almost part of the coming clean. Part, part of why that he seems so present as a ghostwriter is because, like, it's sure it's Harry telling his story, but it's Harry telling his story to the, he's not really a journalist, but the writer, the journalist, um, in his own words, without hiding behind the idea of like this unnamed palace source as everybody else does. And so I don't think he actually, he would have been just as happy, like if the book industry would have just like let him tell his story to someone else and put someone else's name on it, he probably would have been fine with that. But for obviously, for a lot of sales reasons, you, you're not going to do that. So it also feels like the design, too. I mean, Moringer, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, Colin, correct me if I'm wrong, he won his Pulitzer Prize for journalism. Yeah, right? I think. Oh, did he? I think that's right. It, uh, Pants will now look this up. I think, think that's true. Yeah, before <laughs> but we get, I say that yeah. because I think that the, there is a bit of theater in this book um, mm-hmm. by him telling this story to a journalist. I, I, I completely <laughs> think that mm-hmm. this man is very savvy about the roles that his family plays with each other. Um, and I think this is all a tactic towards a greater end mm-hmm. about family. All right. So, you know, uh, uh, we got a couple of other clips that I want to play as we go along here, but maybe I want to go to you, Carolyn, because I think the other thing that we're all trying to do is figure out good guys, bad guys, or good people, mm-hmm. bad people, heroes, villains, and stuff like that. And, and I, I found that this book Although I think it has a very specific agenda uh, about who are the villains and who are the heroes. I, I find that it confused me more than anything else. But I don't know. How did, how did you read that question? Uh, well, what immediately popped into my mind was it's been circulating around the Internet that a bookstore put this book on the shelf in a display in the window right next to a book called How to Kill Your Family. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> And uh, I just think that that is so that is so brilliant. That is such the marketing tactic. Um, And it did feel like this book was him just taking shots. And I I think that that kind of you that makes you want to villainize him. But also like you he is kind of playing this like victim here, like what Teresa talked about, where he's sort of kind of been this pawn for his family his whole life. And you know, everything that he does has been set forth by them and having to ask for permission for how to live for the first, you know, 20, 25 years of your life is not an easy thing. Uh, But it does feel that he's in a position now as a non-working royal and coming out with a book like this and taking, taking these shots at people who are probably not going to respond back. And he knows that. 
So he gets to tell this narrative from this one-sided perspective uh, in this kind of, I'm going to show the receipt sort of way where he is banking on the fact that they're going to have that stiff British upper lip and not respond and kind of hide behind their own policy of dealing with things like this is really, it's kind of cowardly. And in this weird way, like knowing that he's thinking like, all right, I get to be like a real housewife at a reunion right now and talk about everyone uh, and know that they just can't, that they're just not going to respond. But I think um, his position would be that they've already responded. They just do it without owning it. Not yeah. to the things that he's dropping here necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I think that yeah, I, I'm I'm with Teresa on this. I think that yeah. he's his perspective is they are constantly responding through courtiers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sources, and True. then pretending as if they have said nothing at all. It's this palace of of humans that they can't control that are saying these things and i think i think he is very explicitly but i also go back to i think that's why that's it's the design of the book that he too is mm-hmm. speaking through a source um mm-hmm. playing inside of this game of like and also being able to say no but unlike you these are my words well no i mean yes, yeah yeah uh, <laughs> they're not right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey we've got to go to a break here um i just do want to quickly say uh, first of all Yes, uh, Teresa, you were correct um, that uh, Moringer won for journalism for a, a feature writing. Uh, he won his Pulitzer for that. I also want to just quickly say, and I, I don't know, I still haven't really sort of figured out how I feel about any of this, but I do. I did feel occasionally that if one of these things had happened to me, like if there'd been a seven-page spread in one of the biggest newspapers in my country about how I had a massive drug problem when all I'd done was smoke a little bit of pot in school or something like that, <laughs> and that I was in, in rehab, like, you know, forget about having my mother die in a car crash yeah. when I'm 12. Like one of those things I would find very scarring, you know, and it's, it's, <laughs> he's got like a hundred of them basically. All right, let's go take a break. We'll come back with this wonderful panel. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
I couldn't do With plenty of money and you In spite of the worry that money brings Just a little filthy lucre buys a lot of things all right. The great Giacomo Gates, by the way. Connecticut guy. So, uh, yes, we were talking about Spare. By, by the way, if, you, if you're if you not grasping the title, this, there's sort of a, a trope that runs through this. There's the air and the spare, uh, the, sort of the, your backup generator, uh, your auxiliary prince uh, if the first one craps out somehow. And that's who Harry is and how he gets defined an awful lot. Uh, we have a wonderful panel uh, here today, Tanisha Dugan and Carolyn Payne and Teresa Kramer, uh, here to talk about all this. So... There's several things that I want to get into, but but maybe since I, I have um, such a theatrical person uh, here, um, and since a lot of us did listen to the audio, I mean, Tanisha, there's like this whole other thing hearing his voice, right? There's a whole thing about how good he is at playing the role of Harry, uh, and although he doesn't overact it, I mean, there is a little moment where I think his voice does catch as he's describing the coffin being uh, uh, dropped into the ground uh, of his mother. And you could hear the anger in his voice on a number of occasions. I, I don't know. How good is Harry at being Harry on audio? On so I have to. So I actually did a hybrid situation as well. I did the audiobook, I did the actual book. And I also did the book on my phone because I just needed to like figure out how to consume the whole thing in in snatches as best I could. Um, so I started uh, with Harry's voice and I was actually really like, okay, we're going to go on a ride and we're going to hear this through his, his voice, literally. Um, and then I think as the snatches that I caught on audiobook continued, I actually became disappointed at like, how bad of an actor Harry is. <laughs> 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 and I just, I think that like the... The success of an audiobook is your ability to sort of not just take the sort of exposition sections and, and speak those well, but when you're going in and out of character, I need more. I need to know <laughs> who we're talking to, who's who. Like, I need you to sort of paint that picture for me. And so I think it's most successful, you know, when he's speaking of his time um in the army um, and he's really in those first person sections. Um, but then I get a little um, anxious when, when he's trying to be Tej or he's, or he's being one of his personal secretaries and himself inside of it. I'm sort of like, I don't know who's talking anymore. So that is my, <laughs> my theatrical review. <laughs> I'm sure he got one and a half stars from Tanisha Dugan <laughs> for playing himself. How sad is that? Uh, all right. So we haven't really talked that much about the couple themselves. Uh, let's get going with the Netflix documentary. This is from episode three. This is O2. Kat, uh, this, of course, is Harry and Megan. Who else? In your engagement interview, um, <laughs> Orchestrated reality show. Yeah. You mean just like prepping you before they're going to ask you this, 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 or how does that work? Yeah, but also like, and you know, and then there'll be a moment where they'll want to see the ring, so show the ring. The main stone itself, um, a source from Botswana, and the uh, the little diamonds either side are from my mother's jewelry collection to make sure that she's with us on this on this crazy journey together. Not just the notion of an American bride, but also for mixed race so background. Really the first of mixed race ethnicity. Do you have that sense that the combination of the two of you, your different backgrounds, that you represent something new for the royal family? Um, no, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a fantastic team. We know we are. And, and we'll, we, we hope to, you know, over time, 
try and have as much impact for all the things that we care about as, as much as possible. I am very excited about that, yeah. But yes, we weren't, so my point is we weren't allowed to tell our story because they didn't want. We've never been allowed to tell our story. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. the consistency. That, that is consistent, hmm. yeah. Until now. I guess that's why we're here. Yeah. Ah, uh, they finished their sentence, each other's sentences. But um, so, Carolyn, <laughs> this could have been you. Uh. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. Um, Twelve-year-old me was very convinced that my fairy tale life was going to be that I would marry Prince Harry and he and I would give birth to many royal rascally gingers, and in who would run around a palace, and um, that's what I thought was going to happen. I'm really glad it didn't because I, I, I just, <laughs> I don't think any of us would have been happy. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, th this book it was interesting to me because Megan is a character who enters so late. Um, but I guess in the spacing of his life, it, it makes sense. Um, Although he spent a lot of time talking about his time in the war and it really, that did strike me as a, a time of his life that he was maybe the happiest. And uh, the stuff that enters in with Megan really kind of, I mean, this is, I think, the stuff that most people wanted to get to this kind of, uh, because it has become so talked about her mistreatment and her unhappiness and, uh, you know, drawing any of those parallels to stuff that happened in press with his mom. Uh, I, I don't know. I didn't watch in full disclosure, despite having been obsessed with Prince Harry as a, uh, I guess that would be like a tween. Um, I did not, I have not been keeping up and I did not watch the Netflix special or any of the interviews in full disclosure. So I feel like I need to bat this off to somebody who kind of has seen more of this. Cause I have been well, go ahead, yeah. more checked Sorry, out. Yeah. I actually, I actually, so I did watch the Hagen and, Ma uh, Hagen and Mary, whatever. Um, <laughs> I like Hagen. That is the, that's the name of it Hagen from now on. New. That is the yeah. name of it from yeah. now on. <laughs> that's, a, that's the name of this show when you put it as a podcast. Um, so no, I actually, I, I just want to correct you. The show as a podcast is going to be called The Artful Todger. But anyway, yeah. continue. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so I watched that maybe about a month ago. And so I actually was wondering what the book was. I was hoping the book would get we'd get that first half of the book right that is before megan because in a lot of ways i think the um netflix documentary tells that story a little bit better obviously because megan's a bigger part is she's there to tell her own story we don't have to take harry's word for it and um so i was actually really glad and i think the most interesting because that story has been played out in front of us for so long i thought i learned a lot more from the first half of the book and mm. was surprised by more because i'd seen that documentary and it's there's maybe a few things more especially about the stuff that happens when megan's not around between harry and his family that was um maybe a little bit more in depth in the book but for the most part i think um that kind of covers it better. So, Tanisha, we could do a three-hour podcast on the whole subject of race uh, in this particular story. And I, as we've been emailing about this, you've had some really interesting stuff to say. So I'm going to just let you pick your, your your jumping off point. I mean, you're going to be you're going to be sad about my jumping off point because my jumping <laughs> off point is actually how how sad I am that that woman was not able to design her own wedding. 
because she has <laughs> amazing style, you know? And I think we now know that, like, she could never have because it would have potentially been more glamorous and more um, design-minded than anything that the palace could have come up with on their own. And so there was a little bit of con- containment happening, um, which we hear a little bit in that... Um, in the the bit of the documentary that you shared, um, but I, I, you know, what what where where would you like me to go based on the uh, the question around? Well, you you sort of were bringing up in a way that that I was maybe a little less familiar with that whole question of to what degree is she herself maybe. Uh, walking back her her own race or thinking that she's in a, po- oh. a, po- a post-racial situation. Yeah, child, she's I not. could go on forever. <laughs> I do not understand. I don't understand her mama. I don't understand her. <laughs> All of that is confusing to me. Uh, and to be more specific, you know, Megan sort of carries this thing that she didn't know she was a black woman until she met her husband, which is something that <laughs> comes up in the in the documentary uh, specifically. But Harry also, you know, in the book is sort of like, I had no idea about race until my wife. Um, and then it all just, um, listen, I am a middle class black girl from Connecticut. So I actually get that line of, of <laughs> I won't even say questioning or thinking. Mm-hmm. I get that line of protectiveness because it's like, how about we just not deal with it? But I think that there's a, a real tragedy, um, particularly in the character of Doria, who we don't get to see much of um, in the book or the documentary, but that we do see a little bit. Uh, and I, so I have these questions around this Black mother who has this child um, and she has the capacity to really do the talk and chooses because she thinks she can pass not to and and supports her building a life in which she can pass um, to not. Um, and it has me questioning the whole sort of idea and the framing Megan has of like, I didn't Google this person. I didn't know this person existed, mm-hmm. although I came up in the 90s. Um, it all feels a little false <laughs> to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it acts as a protective coding because you can go, well, I, I didn't have to think about him being a part of uh, the family that really was at the root of chattel slavery. I didn't have to think about my mother <laughs> being dark skinned and what that might do to her in a room because I can can go, well, I had no idea who he was. I had no idea I was black. I had no idea <laughs> these things um, existed, um, which does a really grave, uh, to me is super dangerous about, the potential future because she is also you know participating in in a kind of erasure of herself but of, of the rest of us of the realm um in in continuing in this way yeah you know i mean kids I, are white yeah path, right <laughs> yeah because it continue i kept thinking uh about obama in 0708 and there was this Ooh. whole are, are you black enough is he really black is he black enough and i thought his answer was great he said i'll tell you something when i'm trying to ha- hail a cab in new york it turns out i'm pretty black yeah uh, but when, you, when you're running for president of the united states you definitely have a white mama yeah. <laughs> um so it don't happen any other way yeah so I get just we only have a couple minutes left because I, I should say we're going to have a, like a longer musical ending way at the end of the show today. And I have to kind of create some time for it. Uh, no, no. Actually, we're just going to play a David Crosby song kind of in full at the, way at the end of the show. But um, 
but before we break away from this, I do want to just sort of say to ask you guys really quickly, or me, I don't know, maybe not everybody will have a chance to talk, but but somebody will have a chance. So Teresa, <laughs> there's a way in which also this has all become so performative. You know, I mean they've they've made the choice. And, and it may be a very rational and justifiable choice to sort of perform their relationship uh, and, and and make a book and make a Netflix series mm-hmm. called uh, Hagen and Mary. Uh, <laughs> and and I just sort of wonder, like, can, is there any way that this can ever be a normal relationship? Or maybe it was just kind of doomed from that point of view to begin with. I mean, I think I don't think you can consume any of this without wondering that towards the end of the book. I don't know if anyone actually finished it, but I managed to. And um, you learn that their security has been stripped and that they need to pay like they're quoted at some point, like $6 million a year to continue the level of security that they've had up until then. And they have sort of no idea what to do or how they're going to pay for any of this. And then it's all of a sudden very clear why why they're doing all of this, right? Why they're taking all this money because their security needs are so great. And like, they probably won't even live a particularly lavish lifestyle because they just have to pay someone to keep them from being stalked and murdered all the time. Um, But I do kind of wonder if there's a point at which she can go back to acting and I I don't even know what Harry's qualified to do, but maybe he finds some <laughs> other kind of job somewhere. Uh, he can run and, a fondue stand. Uh, yeah. And what was, the, what, was, what was the other thing he wanted to do? <laughs> <laughs> he actually does it just for people who wonder in, in the book he has a conversation with his father his father says what are you going to do because he doesn't want to go to college and he one of one idea is to he wants to run a fondue stand it was ski instructor maybe another i can't remember in kazakhstan maybe because yeah. apparently people go skiing in kazakhstan right. which i didn't know yeah. until this book taught so, me all about it he may just read audiobooks for other people who knows all right well, not if no, tanisha has no, anything to no, say about no. it all right we're going to take a quick break here the panel's going to come back make some recommendations to you, so stay with us. Follow, follow the sun, and which way the wind blows when this day is done. Technical producer today, as usual, is Cat Pastor, the producer of The Nose. Pretty much always uh, is Jonathan McPants. Uh, and uh, our panel today, I just want to say that when I saw the names, Pants kind of re- goes out and recruits the panel. But um, when I saw the names of the, the panel, Teresa Kramer and Tanisha Dugan and Carolyn Payne, I thought, those are the three people I probably would have picked to do this if I'd had any choice. And also the three <laughs> names that scare me the most uh, in this context. And I, I think we've actually gotten through pretty well so far anyway. Time to make some recommendations. Uh, Teresa, would you like to go first? Sure. I'll start with a Instagram um, account called Lehigh Valley Workshop. It's an account that's just sort of run-of-the-mill woodworking videos, but the voiceover is this guy doing these sort of monotone, profanity-laced rants about everything from his crippling anxiety to capitalism, and they just bring me so much joy. I find them so funny and also upsetting at times, but I I really like them, and I I hope the rest of the world will, too. Um <laughs> Also, just listening to audio versions of books you've already read, this made me think about that because I don't often 
I don't always listen to books I haven't read before because I don't absorb them as well. And so I have a tendency to go back to books I love, but I'm probably never going to find the time to read again. And I listen to them as audiobooks. And I will even do that like over and over again as I go to sleep. And it's to the point now where like a prayer for own meaning just immediately puts me to sleep like in a Pavlovian response. And I really recommend other people do that. All right. Particularly if you need to get to sleep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, Tanisha, what are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a book that I'm coming, I'm returning to, um, Bell Hooks All About Love. And I'm endorsing it on the sort of heels of spare because you know, there's something about books you read when you're in your 20s and then you come back to 20 years later and they hit you in a different way. Um, and there's something about, you know, I'm thinking a lot about family in inside of this book now. And I think um, the royal family would do themselves some good to sort of spend some immersive time with, with the uh, bell hooks. And you would too. Uh, so if you haven't read it or haven't come back to it in a while, um, check it out. All right. Great one. Yeah, great one. Nicely done. Uh, Carolyn Payne, what are you going to recommend today? Well, first of all, when we were talking about things that Harry could and should be doing, I will throw into the mix that he should probably just do a podcast about friends. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Considering he is an obsessive fan who sees himself as Chandler. And uh, And maybe an Instagram account with a steady stream of profanities, too. I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, he could maybe pounce on that Teresa recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Let's just get that all in there. Um, and this week, I, I, I've had a very, very busy week. Um, so I didn't really get to consume much else than this, but I'm going to just throw a wild card into the mix and recommend, uh, uh, the new Puss in Boots movie, (laughs) which I I watched with my nephew. And, uh, I mean, hear me out. My Papoulian through line here is that my cat Prince Harry, not only is named Prince Harry, but looks like Puss in Boots from the Shrek enterprise. And, this movie is actually, it is really not made for children at all because any one of the fairy tale characters in it, it would induce nightmares um, and does. But it's actually very witty and uh, fairly well written for considering it is a series children's movie. Um, so if you just kind of want to like turn off your brain after uh, after everything and uh, watch a decent cartoon, I do recommend the Prince, the, um, I almost called it the Prince Harry movie, <laughs> the Puss in Boots movie. There we go. All right. When any one of these panelists says, I'm going to throw a wild card into the mix, and it's something as innocuous as the Puss in Boots movie, I'm <laughs> very relieved. All right. So years ago, I was interviewing Graham Nash, uh, and he told me about this time when he was given by, I think, a general in the army this coin. And he said, you just give it. You're in trouble somewhere with some any official anywhere. You you just hand this coin and you're out of trouble. Uh, and I said, well, it's a good thing they didn't give it to Crosby. Uh, and he said, David would have used it that afternoon. Um, and so David Crosby, a complicated guy who was in and out of trouble, but an amazing musician, died at the age of 81. He meant a lot to me. We're going to uh, end the show today with uh, one of his really marvelous songs and one that really speaks to his story. a young man I found an old dream Was as battered and worn to one As you have ever seen Now I made it some new wings 
pain of the nose And I wished so hard up in the air I To lock up in their life And she was crying at night She was wishing she could be free Of course I mostly remember her laughing Standing and watching us play For a while there The music Would take her away And she'd be singing There and she was waiting to die. She said, If you just reach underneath this bed and untie these weights, I could surely fly. She's still smiling, but she's tired. She'd like to hear that last bell ring. You know, if she still could, she would stand up. Come 